0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment podcast. Podcast.
1: Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia focused, meaning that we're going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law. But occasionally we will get
0: into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right. Now to the studio. Welcome everyone to another session
1: of the Good Judgment podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And in the middle of this unprecedented judicial emergency, we are still having to social distance. So as as we discussed in our last episode, Tane and I are not in the same podcast studio at UGA that we have come to know and love. Instead, we are the beneficiaries of a grant from the State Justice Institute that allowed us to obtain mobile podcasting equipment. Therefore, here I am in Columbia County.
0: And I'm in beautiful Cobb County. And uh, we've improved the connections from last week's recording session, so hopefully the quality's better. Uh, Shout out to Stephen Turner and Kevin Holder for helping us get these episodes out quickly. Uh, We couldn't do it without them, and you guys are just fantastic.
1: That's true. You know, Stephen really did fix it in the mix last time, Tang.
0: No parking on the dance floor.
1: So now, Tane, in our last episode, we discussed how to handle essential matters that might arise during the judicial emergency. We talked about some of the realities that our colleagues across Georgia are facing in our several different classes of court.
0: Yeah, but the reality is that this judicial emergency is going to end at some point, and we've been told to expect that While it may extend beyond the current end date, which is May 13th, it's pretty clear that the judicial emergency will end in phases. While each class of court is facing different hurdles on how they will restart, we wanted to dedicate this episode to kind of thinking out loud how we might handle jury trials in the future when we are allowed to begin trying cases again. Whenever that is, um, we have to handle jury trials in light of everyone's new reality of social distancing. So today, we're going to seriously kick around ideas for how we might conduct a jury trial when the judicial emergency is technically over, but the reality of social distancing remains in effect.
1: You know, Tane, I had the opportunity to be a part of this most recent judicial council meeting on April 24th. We learned that this judicial emergency is going to end. As you just said, but there are there may be some fairly immediate resumption of some activities and and a delay on others. It was clear that the last thing that we are going to do as this sort of graduated restart, the last thing we're going to do is jury trials.
0: And that makes sense. But the truth is that we are going to have to resume while we're still keeping in mind that we can't have 12 people in a traditional jury box. We're not going to be able to have 50 or 60 people in a courtroom at one time to conduct general voir dire.
1: We still have to comply with that legal principle involving open courtrooms that we've come to know and love, but at the same time, get to work on the trials that have been on hold during this judicial emergency. In short, we're basically going to have to innovate and think outside the box.
0: Yeah, I mean, look what we've been able to do in this six weeks since the judicial emergency began. Has it only been six weeks? Man, it seems like six months. Anyway, we're now conducting hearings via video. We're changing where people stand and how they handle or do not handle paper. Uh, Those were innovations that some of us were reluctant to do. Frankly, we didn't know how to do them and still comply with the law. But with the assistance of lawyers and courtroom staff and our colleagues and some really smart people around the state, we've been able to keep the court open and to maintain a certain level of functionality.
1: You know, that's true. But when we think about jury trials, we have to consider a, a new group, the jurors. Potential jurors have been told so far to shelter in place. And it's been for a long time. And suddenly we're going to go from a no contact scenario to a rather close contact scenario involving a jury box or a jury room. In Augusta, we've already had some contact from potential jurors who received a jury summons for weeks that we were going to have to cancel court anyway because of the emergency, but several of them have expressed real concern about what type of exposure they might be facing if they served on a
0: jury. Yeah, I think if we work hard to develop some strategies that will reassure jurors that we have thought of them in our planning and in our reopening of jury trials, we'll have a far better outcome. So today's episode is designed to present ideas and potential issues. Um, Nobody has approved these ideas. I mean, quite frankly, we're just gonna spitball. we're gonna kick around some ideas, we're gonna brainstorm a little bit and throw some things out there, and and we hope that uh, we're gonna get some commentary back from you on all of that. But what we're trying to do is figure out some ideas that might comply with the law and that might allow us to get started on having jury trials once that becomes our reality.
1: Tane, does that imply that sometimes people do approve what we say on this podcast?
0: Gosh, that's never happened.
1: <laughs> so, folks, we recognize that everybody is sort of struggling to apply the law to this new reality. We have social distancing now, and I think that's just going to be a part of our reality.
0: But Yeah, I think the way we did it before is going to have to change you know, we as judges are not known for our willingness to change procedures. We sort of like to stick with the way we did things back in the 1950s. Really? Because we've all watched a lot of black yeah, we've all watched a lot of black and white movies where you know that courtroom stuff was really cool, and uh, we like to keep doing it that way. But whether we want to or not, we're going to have to consider these changes.
1: You know, Tane, one of the things we talked about in the last episode, and we probably need to reiterate, is the judicial emergency didn't change the law. As much power as the chief justice has, he he doesn't have the power to change the law or the Constitution. He did have the power to move some deadlines and time limits, but the law still remains the same. So the law that talks about, for example, the defendant's right to confront his or her accusers, that's still the law. The, the, The law that says that we have to have open courtrooms, that's still the law. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, although I do want to insert at this point that the chief justice is really amazing and really smart. Wow. So anyway, we are still going to have to abide by the same law that we abided by uh, pre-social distancing, pre-COVID virus. And so what we're going to do is take the typical framework of a jury trial and try to adapt it to our new reality. Right, Wade?
1: That's right. So let's talk about a jury trial sort of at the, I guess, thousand foot level. First thing you're going to do is summon jurors for the panel. You're going to handle some juror excuses. Then you're going to go through dire and pick the jury. You actually try the case. Then you have jury deliberations, and ultimately you receive a verdict. So, Tane, let me, let me start, I guess, even before that that sort of outline and ask you this. In Cobb County, are y'all screening people who enter the courthouse for their fever or whether they've had contact with people with COVID-19 or anything like that?
0: No, Wade, we're currently not doing that. I think that's something that we're going to probably have to consider in the future when we begin inviting more people into the courthouse. I mean, our focus thus far has been to try to eliminate uh, than however many people we could from come actually coming to the courthouse and so we've put a lot of emphasis on things we could do by video and uh, ways that we could have an open courtroom without actually having people crowded together uh, in a courtroom setting.
1: What do you think about, about this? About you, so we're not doing it, but, but I have been thinking about this. One of the things that we're going to talk about in a moment is the use of a juror questionnaire. What are in the new reality is going to have to take a lot longer than it used to. And so if you can yeah. find some ways to sort of cut some some time out of it and some of the unnecessary back and forth where people are schmoozing each other or trying to get out of jury duty, then then you, you should. But I've thought about asking some of those questions in like a juror questionnaire. How do you feel about that?
0: I think that's a great way to start out, Wade. I think um, you can at least – give the lawyers a, um, as you do anytime you send out a juror questionnaire, like we sometimes do in death penalty cases or cases where there's been a lot of pretrial publicity, I think you can potentially eliminate a lot of, uh, of the preliminary questions that we ask jurors or that lawyers ask jurors just about you know their occupation and their marital status and all of those basic things that are, are usually going to get asked, eliminate some of that time. Because you hit on a really important point, and I think our colleagues need to understand this. The things in the near future are just going to take longer than they have before. We're not going to be able to do things in the same way, which means some of these things are just going to be more cumbersome than they've been before.
1: You know, you mentioned the other day that y'all use numbers for jurors instead of names. And you talked about the inevitable back and forth between the lawyer who can't pronounce the last name and the juror who tries (laughs) to get the pronunciation correct and that whole thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I was you know, I was a trial lawyer and we
1: once upon a time.
0: Once upon a time, lo, those many years ago, um, and one of the things that we always tried to do was build rapport with the jurors, and, and the way that you did that was, you know, you just you just went back and forth with them and talked with them, and if you mispronounced their name, you made a joke about that, and I think one of the things that we need to try to do as judges to streamline the process is. Um, eliminate some of that. And lawyers aren't going to like it, but I, I think you can still do your job as a lawyer and eliminate some of those things. So what we've done, yeah, is we, we give each juror as they walk in a juror, a, a little, all it is, is a, a, you know, six by eight uh, sheet of paper. Uh, there are different colors for each panel, but uh, they just have a large number on them. And when we're asking general questions in, uh, of the jury, we just have them hold them up. It looks like an auction's going on. You know, they're all holding these, these numbers up and we're just writing down the numbers and I'm either I'm calling them out or the lawyers are calling them out and we're writing them down as they answer the questions. It really does streamline the process.
1: So let's start in the very beginning, summoning jurors. So, Tane, do you think we need to change the number of jurors we summon for a potential trial? You know, normally before pre-COVID, PC, we probably had about a 50 percent show up rate compared with the number of summons we sent out. I mean, others may be slightly more, but I don't think anybody was really reaching 75, 80 percent.
0: Yeah, I think I think the re- reality is nobody's going to know how many folks show up uh, or are going to answer those summons until we start calling people in. So, you know, the, ver- the first few cases, the reality is those are going to be test cases for each jurisdiction, just to see what your response rate is, just to see how many people, um, you know, will ask to be excused right off the bat and that sort of thing.
1: So let's start off with what we need. We, each party has nine strikes, assuming we're talking about a one defendant case. And that's under OCGA 15-12-165. You have to have a jury of 12, ultimately. So there's going to have to be a panel of 30 qualified jurors to pick from, and and that would be consistent with OCGA 15-12-160.1. Don't you love it when we call out statutes and case names on the podcast?
0: Please write those down while you're driving in your automobile, people.
1: Um, <laughs> no, 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 say. no, don't do that. <laughs> no, we're, remember, we're going to put these up on our website, goodjudgepod.com.
0: That's right. Well, so wait, I used to call in 42 jurors if I wanted an alternate or two to make sure that I had enough qualified jurors. Is that, is that consistent with what you do?
1: Exactly the same number we would do.
0: Yeah. So if we assume that we have a, 50% response rate, then we'd need to summon approximately 100 potential jurors in hopes of having 50 show up, and then we could use 42 for the general voir dire and uh, keep a few in reserve just in case we needed them, in case we had a, an inordinate number of strikes for cause.
1: You know, you mentioned alternates. Uh, you're going to have to have three qualified jurors for every one alternate you want. Um, so, and as you know, 15-12-168 gives the judge the discretion to have an alternate or not. But if the case was pre-COVID one that you would wanna have an alternate, you're gonna wanna have it post-COVID.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And my rule of thumb on that weight has always been if the trial is gonna be more than about three days, I'm always gonna have uh, at least one alternate. Uh, I usually have one alternate no matter what. If the case is gonna go more than five days, I usually will have two alternates.
1: So let me ask you this. Now that we've said all this, are you going to suggest that we bring in more jurors than normal?
0: Yeah, I think at least in the beginning. uh, Like I said, the first few trial runs that we make, no pun intended, of uh, getting jurors are just going to be a test to see how many people actually show up. Because think about this, too. In the early days when we call calling jurors, we're going to be asking people to leave their jobs for a week when potentially a lot of them have already been off from their jobs for months by the time we start calling this uh, jurors back in. That's going to be a tough ask on our part.
1: Well, that kind of brings us a good segue there, bud. That, that brings us to juror excuses because, you know, let's talk about the the – the juror excuses that we we know exist in the law and then the ones that are going to be COVID-related because you know that a juror is going to come in and say, I don't want to be here because I'm going to be in close contact with other people and fill in the blank. I have a spouse with a... Uh, that's more susceptible to COVID. I have a parent, a child, whatever. And those jurors who are furloughed and laid off, like you talked about, maybe for months and during the shutdown, are just going back to work. And now you're going to ask them to take off. Is that going to be an excuse that you are going to, I guess, honor?
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, the key to that, really, as it's always been, is. We're going to have to – first of all, I would suggest we we all need to as a jurisdiction, so however many judges you have in your jurisdiction, need to discuss those things ahead of time and say, okay, what are we going to accept as a valid excuse uh, for – not being a part of a jury, um, what are we not going to let people out for? So, so for example, just the general fear of being in the room with other people during that period of time, um, is that going to be a valid excuse? And you and I are going to talk about some of this in a minute about things that we're going to suggest to do to keep jurors safe. And and how we can let them know up front, okay, if you are picked for this jury or even during jury selection, here's what we're going to do to keep you safe. So we'll talk about some of that in a few minutes also. But I, I think is that going to be an excuse? Is work going to be an excuse? And I think the key is going to be as a jurisdiction, you're going to have to think about these things ahead of time and make some make some decisions.
1: You know, under OCGA 15-12-1.1, those are the existing excuses. You always have the good cause exception, but the specific class of people who are, are allowed to be excused, the first group is probably a group we have talked about more during the shutdown than any other, and that is people whose work is necessary to public health, safety, and good order. That would include all your doctors, your nurses, your paramedics, law enforcement, firefighters, etc. Those are going to be people who have been absolutely stretched out during this COVID shutdown, and they are going to probably ask to be excused.
0: Hey, and a, a, a gratuitous shout out to all of those people during this period of time. Man, you first responders and medical people and all of you you all are awesome so i know they don't listen to this podcast but anyway if they were we would really love to give them a shout out at this
1: you don't think we have a big doctor and nurse contingent on the good judgment podcast
0: (laughs) you know they got a lot of time on their hands while they're waiting on cases so they i'm sure they're listening to podcasts anyway we're going to cut into that demographic you just wait and see
1: so we have the the next group is full-time college students well you know what's happening with college
0: yeah. Yeah. I have a student who's a senior in high school or was a senior in high school. I, that sort of fell apart. Uh, but, uh, yeah,
1: he didn't do he didn't pass
0: college. We will. That remains to be seen. We don't even know if there's going to be graduation. So uh, I don't know. I don't know. He just he just hangs around the house, and you know, complains about stuff. I, I don't know.
1: <laughs> so um, we have but, primary yeah. caregivers. <laughs> of young children, primary caregivers of people who have um, physical or cognitive limitations, people who who homeschool. You know, think about this group. This is all part of the statute. The the people who are age 70 and over, we've been told repeatedly they are the most susceptible to COVID.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, we had a fair number of those pre-COVID who would ask for exceptions and excuse, be excused. It has to be excused, and I think we will have even more post-COVID.
1: You know, you also, then the last uh, group that is a part of that statute specifically, are military members or a spouse of a military m- member who is on ordered military duty, which is defined in the statute, but for those people who've had some people uh, activated in the National Guard, they would be excused.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right, and and we will run into even more of those than we did before, so... Um, And I think, as I said, we'll have to discuss as a a jurisdiction, as a circuit, you know, what other things are we going to consider as valid excuses for us? And, you know, obviously someone who's still in the quarantine period or, you know, someone who's got a family member who's been quarantined or, you know, all of those kinds of obvious red flag problems. Those are going to be things that, like you said earlier, we're going to... Probably be asking on a questionnaire that goes out to those jurors before um, they even report potentially uh, for jury duty.
1: And don't Some forget any questions. Well, let me ask you this: Do y'all allow someone other than a judge to consider juror excuses?
0: We have just a few things that we will allow our jury administrator to excuse folks for. For example, people who are over 70 years of age, that sort of thing that is listed in the statute um, that we have generally always let people be excused for. So she knows what things she can excuse people for on her own and what things we have to address.
1: We have that, too, but don't forget to notify that person once you have this meeting with your colleagues and y'all have come to this decision. Don't forget to notify that person if the rules have changed. You need to let make sure that person knows as well.
0: Yeah, good point. All
1: right, so let's move to Vordar, Um, which I think you pronounce differently.
0: <laughs> I pronounce it in the French pronunciation rather than the Latin.
1: Tell the people what it means.
0: In In, in French, it means... To see and to speak, uh, but in Latin it means to speak the truth. I say that like that because I got schooled on that recently, and uh, so
1: (laughs) that's why I ask you. All right, juror questionnaires. We're going to suggest that maybe you consider sending out juror questionnaires to get that background data. What part of the county do you live in? Do you have children? Are you married? What kind of work do you do? Etc. But Tane, one of the things that has been our reality is when you send out a questionnaire and you expect them to send them back, you know, go find an envelope, put a stamp on it and send it back. That's kind of an unreasonable ask. There's a real possibility that you're going to have to have them just complete them upon their arrival and bring them with them.
0: Yeah. And the other alternative I was thinking about, Wade, and again, we're just kind of throwing out ideas here. But if we could set up some simple way of having people simply email that information back to a central repository and have it printed out and available for the lawyers, that would really be a lot simpler for the folks who are uh, who are asked to respond to these things. If their juror or someone simply said, you are required to answer certain questions, um, please go to www. You know com and answer these 10 questions or something like that. Um, you know, I'm not a technical person, so I won't be the one who's putting that up. <laughs> yeah, Wade just had a shocked face uh, about that. But yeah, I won't be the guy doing that. But I think there's a simple way that we could make that happen. Um, And then for the people who don't fill it out, we can have them fill it out as soon as they uh, report to the jury room.
1: So that people understand we are in different places. He really is in Cobb County and I really am in Columbia County. But while we're recording this, we are also on a Zoom um, conference meeting, whatever. And so we can see each other and we can... Shake our heads at each other and roll our eyes at each other like we normally do when we're at UGA, so back to the issue give of
0: each other useful give each other useful hand signals right Wade
1: yeah, yours is usually involves one finger, but anyway, um That's not true m- moving forward with voir dire, you know you do have the option of asking the lawyers or requiring the lawyers to submit their proposed voir dire questions in advance of the trial to eliminate. Improper questions and kind of streamline the process. There's a couple of cases on that: uh, Wilkins W i l k i n s versus the State, two forty six Georgia Appeals six sixty seven, and Allen the State two thirty nine Georgia Appeals eight ninety nine. They've all basically said the judge has a lot of authority and a lot of discretion in how to control voir You can't you can't do it in a way that that eliminates people's rights, but you have a lot of discretion. And I have found myself doing that in a couple of cases, not just death penalty cases, but in a couple of cases where I have some knowledge of the tactics of the participants.
0: Yeah, and and, and remember, folks, these aren't just general. These don't have to be just the general questions about you know where you live in the county or whether you've had jury service. These these are these can be the substantive questions that lawyers ask um, that you can have them submit. And one of the reasons for that is so that you as the judge can eliminate some of those questions that are actually not questions that should be asked um, as what, what their questions. So and, – and Wade's got a great list of those um, in his trial outline um, that, that he posts from time to time on our website as well, um, the kinds of questions you can and cannot ask as a lawyer – uh, when conducting war dire, deer. So I think that's something that we all ought to consider. It certainly would help streamline and it certainly would help us as judges be able to eliminate some questions. Now, lawyers are not going to like it uh, so much, but, you know, these again, these are the realities that we face in
1: this new era. If you decide to let to request, I guess, or demand that they submit their questions in advance, let them know you're going to let them ask follow ups that naturally are, are triggered by these questions. And you're not going to ask yeah. them to sort of anticipate all of those sort of questions, but at least the broad topics. Now, Tane, I think that we're probably going to have to, in this new era, handle Vordar much more like we would do in a death penalty case. For example, having General Vordar in one form or another, but then telling the lawyers to gather their responses by number, if that's what you're going to do, or however name, however you're going to do it. But then hold any follow-ups until you get to the individual Vordar, you know how we typically do it in a death case.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And you know, you and I even talked about the fact that uh, I mean, we're going to have to figure out how to do general void dire. You know, how how do you get you know 50 people in a room or 42 people in a room spaced? six feet apart from one another just to do the preliminary questions and things that we normally would do just to get jury trials started.
1: You know, yesterday during the um, judicial council meeting, the chief justice mentioned that one of the ways they may seek to limit the number of people in a room is to go to the capacity of your room and tell you, for example, you can only have one-fifth of those number of people in the room. Well, if you have a room with a capacity of 50, let's say, and they go one fifth on you, you're going to have 10 people in the room. That means that your court staff and the parties are going to take up all of your available space. What are we going to do about that? Right.
0: Well, and one of the things you and I talked about is again, we were just throwing around ideas about how some of this might happen is we may have to think about, trying to figure out what is our room in the courthouse or, or in the appropriate facilities that has the largest capacity. Um, and, and is it possible at least to start the jury selection process in that room?
1: You mean like a jury assembly room or a vacant courtroom that's not being used today or whatever?
0: Exactly. Like for example, our jury assembly room has a capacity, I believe of about 300. Well, think about that. Um, If you were trying to space people six feet apart, you could easily put uh, 50 people in that room with chairs spaced six feet apart um, and have enough people for – uh, for an initial jury selection to do all your preliminary instructions and uh, ask general questions of the jurors and still have them spaced six feet apart. And we'll talk about some other precautions that would need to be taken as well. But, but at least in terms of just sheer numbers, that might be a way to get the process started. Um, you know, and you were talking about in, in jurisdictions uh, of uh, 50,000 or less – um, there's a possibility of even designating um, a different facility than the courthouse that people could use. Talk, talk about that a little bit, later.
1: So there is a statute that allows the, the county to designate another place as a courthouse. That's OCGA 15-6-18. But when you start doing that, make sure you look at this case called Osborne, O-S-B-O-R-N, versus the state 310 Georgia appeals 856 In Osborne a bomb threat was made at the courthouse so the judge decided to conduct voir at a local church it was a big space it was near the courthouse etc the defendant objected on a separation of church and state grounds and then on appeal it was noted that the alternate location can only be used where the population of the county is 50,000 or less and where the governing authority, which means the commissioners or whatever your version of commissioners are, designate that other location as a temporary courthouse. The statute that was in effect at that time required the consent of the defendant. That's not required anymore, but the other location is going to have to be a building owned or leased by the county. And the Supreme Court talked about that in Goodman, G-O-O-D-M-A-N versus the state, 293 Georgia eighty. They said that just because a courthouse was under renovation but the commissioners did designate the senior sitter as a courthouse, the fact that the defendant did not consent because that was a statute at the time was harmless error. They did it again in a case called Dubose, D-U-B-O-S-E, and all this is on goodjudgepod.com. The defendant consented, but the commissioners hadn't designated it during a courthouse renovation. Again, they went the harmless error route. But the statute does not allow the government authority to designate a building for anybody, for a county where the population is greater than 50,000 at the latest census. So we have a lot of counties in Georgia where that would apply, but we have a lot that it wouldn't. But the statute does allow the commissioners to designate a building as an annex or a satellite
0: courthouse as well. Yeah, you know, it, that's kind of a shame, really, because I can think of a number of facilities around my county that are close to the courthouse that would allow us to have the kind of capacity that we might need to, again, start uh, start jury trials and give us a good capacity to do that that are within, you know, a few blocks of the courthouse. but. Uh, you know, we, we'll just have to deal with those realities, and maybe there'll be some changes to those statutes in the future that'll give us a little more flexibility on that. You
1: know, if you think about it, you got schools that aren't in business with lunchrooms and gymnasiums and things where you could really space people out, but then you're going to have that issue with the sheriffs and security. If you have an inmate in custody and how you're going to move him in and out sure. of the room and all that stuff. So anyway, sure. there are a lot of issues to undertake, but let's go back to Vordar for a minute. So we've done general Vordar. We may have to do it more than once. You know, if your room, if you just don't have the ability to to use the jury assembly room or whatever, you may have to do it with a smaller group than the whole.
0: Yeah. And let's talk about that, Wade. So, so getting back to, to how we would do that, with a room with a smaller capacity. I think the first step of that is maybe uh as we've done for uh individual questions, uh you you break the jury into panels of say 12 uh numbers or or maybe even 6 if you have to, uh give each jury uh, group a panel number and you do both your general questions and then your individual or specific questions, follow up questions, um, with those smaller groups and just do it over and over and over. Now, I'll caution you, um, having done that before in a case, don't forget <laughs> to do those preliminary questions with the jury because you're not used to doing them multiple times. And it is really easy to get to, you know, panel number six and think, did I ask these questions already or did I not ask these questions of this panel
1: already? And swear them in and do all those things that you have to do repeatedly that you normally do once. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's assume for a minute we didn't do it that way, that we were somehow able to do General Vordier sort of as a larger group then you probably are going to have to break the jurors into panels of 10 or 12 people or less, as you said, to conduct individual voir dire and don't even wait for a request. Just do it as talked to, or as contemplated by OCGA 15-12-131. You know, that's going to take a lot yeah, longer, Tane. To,
0: oh, you're absolutely right. And we have the ability to do that without having a request from either of the parties. Um, you know, we've always... At least I have in the past waited for the parties to ask me to uh, to put twelve in the box, as we say. But uh, but you have the ability to just say from the beginning, "Hey, here's how we're going to do this." And you know, as a circuit, you may want to set out that as part of your procedure for you know the the present time post COVID.
1: You know, you're going to tell one panel to remain in the room, whatever your number is. I'm still not comfortable using the jury box, but we'll talk about that in a minute and then send the remaining panels either to the jury assembly area. And if you get to a panel five and six, tell them to come back after lunch and you're gonna to have to just sort of gauge your time accordingly. And you're gonna to have to let the people involved in the case have lunch and have a break. So, you know, you may say, okay, groups three and four come back at two, even though it's currently 1030. And um, those are the kind of things though, that you've got to think about the logistics of a little bit. Um, just to make sure yeah. that you get through this process,
0: I've done that in the past. You know, you, you you just calculate how long do I think it's going to take for these lawyers to uh, to to question this panel. And if you think about it, okay, if you have if you have twelve jurors in a panel. Um, if you take five minutes per juror, which is really a short period of time for lawyers on both sides, that's two and a half minutes per side per juror. If you had sixty minutes in an hour. If you had an hour for twelve jurors, that's five minutes per juror.
1: What is it? This sounds like one of those. If a train leaves at twelve miles an hour, and
0: <laughs> yeah, what time will what time will jury selection yeah. end?
1: How many apples are in the train, or something? I, you know, whatever. <laughs> So I'm still not comfortable.
0: Let us us give our disclaimer. We don't give this enough, Wade, but let us give our disclaimer. We do not do math. Wade and I, there will will be no math questions on our exam following this podcast. None. (laughs) Zero.
1: So, Tane, I'm still not comfortable putting jurors in a jury box. And even if you're doing the panels or even if you throw in some extra chairs, I I think we're just going to have to use the gallery for Voidire and maybe even the trial.
0: Yeah, as we talked about in our other COVID broadcast that we did last week, um, one of the things that I've done is gone into my courtroom and basically taped off the gallery so that I have spaced everybody who would be sitting there six feet apart. So, for example, you may have, you know, two jurors on – or, you know, three jurors on the back row if your row is long enough – um, and then the next row may have no jurors on it, and then the row in front of that may have three, you know, three jurors. So that you know, your maximum capacity for the room is is you know, twelve people, fifteen people, twenty people, um, depending on how big your gallery is. I just think that's you know, that's what we that's going to be our reality. Is the jury box may be may have to be the gallery now. That that has its own special issues, which is, okay, well, the courtroom has to be open. How do you allow spectators in if you filled up your gallery with potential jurors? And what about the case that may have lots of spectators? And so, uh, you know, there, there may be some issues and you can jump in on this, too, because I think you've had some conversations uh, with some people about that as well. Haven't you?
1: I have. Um, let me do this sort of one way at a time. Let's talk about yes. the open courtroom requirement. OK. You know, this case came out that now Justice Peterson, then Court of Appeals Judge Peterson, wrote in a case called Jackson versus the state that has some of the most profound first few words that uh, I remember coming out in a, in a, an in appellate case. So basically it said that we are not the star chamber. We are not, you know, the, the, the old, um, inquisition era judicial bodies. We are an open courtroom. We're part of the public and it's, it goes back to the English tradition, but we have to have courtroom space available not only for the parties, not only for the jurors, but while you have a power to control proceedings, you can't do it in a way that affects the First Amendment rights of the parties or the media. And I think, Tane, if I'm not mistaken, the case that we talk about in the outline may have been a Cobb County case. Um, Keshe?
0: Yeah, I think it's Sehe. Sorry. Uh, the way they pronounce it, but yeah, Matt's. It's weird. It's a C-S-E-H-Y versus the state. Yeah, um, that's right. And I don't remember the exact facts of that case, but the, the bottom line of it was that, you know, not only is the right to have the public presence a right of the defendant, it is also essentially a right of of the public in general, in other words, uh, that the media has a right to be in the courtroom. That that just members of the public, the mother of the you know of the defendant or of the you know one of the parties uh, has a right to come in, because the whole underlying idea of open courtrooms is to make sure that the court is functioning in a way that comports with the Constitution.
1: And folks, we have so, some we have some cases on this. If you're looking for authority talking about the you have a lot of authority to control proceedings, but not in a way that affects the Sixth Amendment right to a public trial. And then that Georgia's constitution even provides more right to a, to the, the, the public trial concept than does the Sixth Amendment. So we have a lot of that case law out in on goodjudgepod.com if you need it.
0: So let's talk about the practicality of how, how you do this. And, and, and so there are, Again, it calls for us to think outside the box, to do things differently than what we've done in the past. But, for example, if you've got the gallery filled – and I've had times, quite frankly, where I had 48 jurors called in for a case, which essentially fills my gallery. It fills all, all the rows in my gallery because I don't have a lot of seats in there. It's about a 50-person about a capacity. Um, I have had the gallery filled with jurors while we're asking general questions, and I have invited members of the public to sit in the jury box. Um, you know, to, to give them a spot in the courtroom where they could sit. So literally, if someone comes to the door and wants to be seated, the bailiff would walk them across the courtroom and go sit them in the jury box because we are required to provide them with a place to watch the proceedings.
1: And you know, Tane, I get these words all messed up all the time. I've always thought it was a closed circuit broadcast, um, but I may be wrong. Um, a lot of during the COVID, a lot of people could start talking about live streaming of, of hearings. But basically, you can accommodate the public by putting them in a different room in the building and showing the proceedings. In other words, playing a video feed of what's going on in the courtroom at least during Vordar when you have so many more jurors involved
0: Well and I had a conversation with uh, with the Chief Justice about this early on because we were trying to figure out how to do some of this and one of the things that he indicated that was a concern he didn't say you know this was part of the case law or whatever but he said one of the things I would like to see if you're doing that though, is an ability for a member of the public to at least be able to look into the courtroom where the proceeding is actually taking place and see that the live stream is really what's going on in the courtroom and I get that you know it's it, and there's this idea that it's a check and a balance on us as the judiciary for people to be able to look see that you know we're not we're not doing one of those cool things like they do on Mission Impossible, where you loop the, you know, the recording. And, and I, I'm not capable. I don't know any technological stuff. But, but one of the things I'll say, because of the way our courtroom is built, you actually do have the ability to have, for example, the outer doors open. And then the inner we have an inner door and an outer door for the courtroom. The inner doors have windows on them so you can have the outer door open and the inner doors closed and people can see in the courtroom. And we actually have a, we have a um, video viewing booth that, that's right adjacent to the outside of the courtroom that people can look in from there too. So we've been leaving those doors open so the members of the public could walk up and see what, what's going on.
1: Can I talk to you about a way, way, way outside the box conversation that's literally ongoing right now?
0: I love it when you do that. Yes.
1: So yesterday when we were sort of plotting, people wouldn't believe this by listening to us, but we actually do plot the direction of these podcast episodes. Um, Shocking. I know. I sent a.
0: Because it really doesn't seem like it when you listen to them.
1: (laughs) I, uh, (laughs) I, I sent Justice Milton a question. And I said, would it be possible to use video to conduct Vordar? And I thought it was just going to go into the abyss. And then Justice Namius, I didn't even send it to him, and he responded with, oh, that's a really interesting idea. Can we get some research done on this? And I saw where a request went out to one of the national uh, centers for state courts, and asking if anybody has been doing that. But here, here was my thought. And this may be crazy and, and everybody can just tell me to t- take my video camera and go home because I'm all into video. But you can start a meeting like you would on Zoom or WebEx or Microsoft Teams or whatever other software everybody's been using during the during the virus. You could position a webcam, laptop, whatever, in a way that you could see the whole panel. In the jury assembly room, you know, the room that has enough space to accommodate 40-something people or 50-something people. I'm going to suggest that if you even think about doing this, and I'm going to get a better answer over the next few days, and we'll make sure that we update people, at least on the website, if not on another episode. But I'm going to say, you know, you tell people to stand. And because sometimes you don't always see the hand raising, they don't raise it high and they put it down after a few minutes or whatever. Just tell people to stand and have make sure everybody calls out their number as to whatever their juror number is a response. And then sit down because we're not going to carry on. We're going to do General dire that way, hopefully. And so then you could actually... Then just bring a panel into the courtroom so that lawyers and the defendant have a chance to really eyeball them, as somebody might say. But think about that. You could do it the other way around. You could do general than special, but that really, I mean, g- general than individual, but that doesn't really make any sense. If you're having a space issue, you have a space issue for 40-something people, not 10 or 12. But anyway, that's a that's an ongoing conversation. I don't know how it's going to turn out. Some people may go, "No, ain't no way we're doing that." So anyway, just a thought. Now, Tane, let's go on to the trial because we because we we're getting a little late, and Stephen's gonna throw stuff at us next time we see him if we make him work this hard. This let's talk about the trial itself. During the trial, do you think that there's any problem with leaving the jury in like a section of the gallery or in the first row of the gallery or whatever, all the way across and have that be the jury box? Cause you know, the lawyers aren't going to want to argue with their back to you.
0: No, I don't, I don't think that's a problem. I mean, again, we're, we're breaking paradigms. We're creating new paradigms. You know, we're doing all of that. I, I think reorienting the courtroom in that way makes a whole lot of sense. And, and it's, It's the one way that we can probably conduct our trials and still be able to comply with the social distancing that we're going to need. So I think it makes sense. I think putting people out in the gallery and making that be your jury box um, makes a lot of sense.
1: Now, we talked about a little bit about how do you handle exhibits and we talked about potentially making copies of any paper or photo exhibits, but I don't think that really even solves the problem. Because somebody had to touch it to get it off the copier. I mean, to put it on the copier, whatever. At some point, I think that the exhibits are going to be a problem and probably brings up the bigger issue of PPE, you know, personal protective equipment.
0: Right. But you can't get it. I think, no, I think you're right. I I think, um, you know, one of the things that, that we'll have to look at when we start this process is, how can we obtain enough personal protective equipment so that it is available for essentially everyone that we call into the courthouse? And remember, you know, a lot of this PPE will not be reusable for us. You know, if you use a set of gloves and you start touching a whole bunch of stuff with them, then those suddenly become something that you have to dispose of and give the jurors and the court personnel another set of that PPE to use. So, it's going to take a lot and uh, right now first of all it's just not available secondly it's going to cost money it's going to cost a lot of money and i think um, you know trying to figure out where that's going to come from and those funds are going to come from is an issue that we're all going to have to confront as we go forward with this as well
1: you know if you're going to get ppe and you know that they're going to delay the beginning of jury trials for a while if it's a four to six week, four to six week wait, order them now. You almost have to, and and don't forget to go look to your county um, emergency management group agency, whatever. They may have a stockpile, but they may not as well. So, Tane.
0: Well, but they may be the people to talk to about how you can get, you know, some access to it as well because. They are in the pipeline of people who can obtain that material as, you know, sort of first in line.
1: You know, Tame, we've, we've sort, of, sort of gone through a jury trial. And we're talking about putting people in the gallery and using video and questionnaires and all these different things. But, you know, the truth be told, the problem with the, our new reality is not going to be how do you do one trial. It's going to be how do you do a bunch of trials during the same week for circuits that have multiple judges trying to use all of the available courtroom space.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point, Wade. I think that we're going to have to contemplate. I mean, you know how we all used to do jury trials. You called in 300 jurors, you know, three or four of us were all having jury trials starting on the same day. We called up our panels into our courtrooms and we got things started. I don't think that's going to be the reality uh, because again, space is going to be going to be the issue. Um, if my room, my jury assembly room with capacity of 300, now can only hold 50 people, um, you know, I, it's going to we're, we're going to start one jury trial at a time and we're going to have to do them on some kind of a rolling basis or an alternating basis or something, which means we're going to do fewer fewer jury trials in the same amount of time. You know, if
1: you are lucky enough to have a jury assembly room in your courthouse, there's only one of them. And so you can't use that as your jury room. So when they go to deliberate or go out because you have an objection that needs to be taken up outside the presence of the jury, maybe you could use an, a, a vacant courtroom, but it may not be vacant all week. And so you're going to have right. to sort of rethink, okay, what about a grand jury room? What about a big conference room? But you don't want the jury every time they have to step out because there's an objection because we're going to do that the same way we always have, Do take up things outside the presence of the jury or not have a bunch of bench trials, I mean bench conferences, because they have to be taken down, defendant present, et cetera. If you right. start doing that and another judge starts working on Tuesday or Wednesday, then you're going to lose that available room and you've still got to be able to accommodate this. So there's going to have to be some foresight by the people around you on how we're going to do the mechanics of handling this jury.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're going to have to take into consideration how we designate space. Um, You know, we have 10 judges in my jurisdiction. My guess is that for a while, You know, we're going to have to have court on alternating basis, you know, that no more than three to five of us will be having court on the same day uh, just because of space issues or, you know, but those are all things. And again, we're just throwing out ideas for you to think about, but you're going to have to figure out what your physical space looks like and how you can best use it to try to do the things we need to do.
1: And we're not suggesting you have somebody walk around with a y- ruler or yardstick and measure every six feet and you know radius and all that. But you need to get pretty close. And not doing that sort of sends a message to the jury that that they're not being considered. Doing that leaves a message with the jury that they are being considered. And in this time where your local media may be looking for stories to run and things like that. It might be a good idea for your chief judge or somebody in your circuit to let a story be produced that says we we're thinking about you jurors and we are going to accommodate you in some way. It doesn't have to be with all the details, but but just so that the message gets out. So Tame, we've talked about okay, go ahead.
0: Well I was just gonna say you know you know how what a big proponent I am of having good media relations as a as a court. And I think absolutely once you are to the point where you think you're going to begin uh, calling in jurors in your jurisdiction, I think to the extent you can have um, you know, media reports about how you intend to take care of those people and all the uh, precautions that you're taking to make sure that that's safe – I think that's something that you have an obligation to get out there. If it's on your your website, if you have one, or uh, you know, however the local media is going to respond. And quite frankly, uh, when you when you send out those jury summons, I would give them a website they can go to to see what your procedures are going to be that you have in place to protect them during that period of time that they're, you're asking them to come in.
1: You know, Tim, we we started this off by saying we were going to dedicate this this episode to jury trials. But I do want to touch real quickly on having other types of hearings in this debacle because they are backlogging as well. This video hearing option has worked well for me. And I just want to talk about me during the the essential. I usually
0: do want to talk about you.
1: Thank you. During the essential only phase of this, I have conducted full domestic relations hearings with, with witnesses from other states, with exhibits, et cetera. I've held full 4B hearings in cases that are pending. I've conducted hearings on motions for summary judgment, all by video, and it has worked well. Now, it required a little bit of effort because the parties needed to photocopy and email their exhibits in advance of trial, having pre-marked them. But it really is going to be one of those things that we're going to have to probably keep in our arsenal because we are all going to be struggling for courtroom space. You think about it. Probate courts, magistrate courts, state courts, juvenile courts, they've all been on hold, too. And so whatever their normal pattern of courtroom usage has been historically, that's not going to be the way they do it anymore because they need to catch up as well. So in the short run, if probate court only uses the courtroom on Wednesday afternoons, they may have to do that. They may need court space more than they ever have to just try to catch up with their arraignments that are getting on hold and they can't bring in 100 people anymore. So they have to bring in groups of 20 and Just be aware that we're going to have to accommodate each other. So don't quit using the video options merely because the judicial emergency
0: ends. Yeah, that's a great point, Wade. I think more than ever, we're going to have to coordinate with our colleagues about, okay, Wade, when you're doing jury trials or when you're doing criminal, um, I'll be doing domestic, you know, via video during those days when I just can't have courtroom space or I can't ask, uh, you know, to to be able to use the courtroom space for an entire week or something like that. So I, I think you're exactly right. I think it's going to take a lot of a lot more coordination than we've ever tried to have, because I know your, your jurisdiction is probably like mine. We, we as judges function fairly independently of each other most of the time. Yeah, Shocking, huh? But. Um, <laughs> in terms of what we're scheduling when and those sorts of things.
1: You know, Tane, we've mentioned this a few times, but we have not, you and I have talked about off air that we have had some difficulty getting lawyers to buy into the video hearing process during the COVID shutdown. Yes. And
0: We we haven't had a lot of takers when we've thrown that out as an option and said, you know, you we can do this if you want to do it. I think what we're probably going to have to do in the future is say we're doing this hearing and we're doing it by video because we can't be in the courtroom for this hearing.
1: So folks, as we wrap this up today and I know that for some of you you think we've gone a little long, we think that there might be some some people listening to this that might be court administrators or lawyers or other people trying to get a sense of what the future holds. Tane has said it a few times and I, I want to reiterate it. These are ideas, and we don't know your particular circumstance and 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 your facility and how what, what your options may be. But truth be told, we have to rethink how we've done it since Moses. We 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 really have got to rethink how things are being rethink how things are being done because the way we've been doing them just simply can't be the way we're going to do them. Folks, things have changed. That's a done deal. We don't get to vote on that now. They have changed officially going forward, probably permanently. So what are we going to do about it?
0: Yeah. You know, a few years ago, the the catchphrase or the big phrase was, we're going to break the paradigm. We're going to, you know, change the paradigm. Well, this virus has changed it for us. You know, we've been doing things the same way that, uh, Uh, Gregory Peck did them in To Kill a Mockingbird in that beautiful black and white uh, uh, film years ago. We've been doing them the same way ever since then. It's time to think outside that box now. And uh, so that's what Wade and I are trying to do with this podcast is give you some things to think about and also to respond back to us. and. Wade and I love to have your comments. So if you want to get in touch with us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com, that's goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We would love to hear your feedback on some of these ideas, why they might work, why they might not work, um, especially why they might work. Um, and also, you know, other ideas that you might have that are completely different from what we've done here today.
1: And we'll be happy to follow up this, this episode with a reaction episode. If we get some some good ideas or some, maybe you maybe even come across a reason that this won't work. We're, we're happy to hear that because that's what I'm telling you. That's what the chief justice is looking for. That's what the, the, the different councils are looking for is input. And we're all so busy trying to figure out how to conduct video hearings and, and whatnot and, and, and stay viable during this time that maybe we don't share our ideas. Folks, the. We need you to give us input on this episode. We want your input on this episode. We always want your input, but and I think sometimes you think well, that's just a throw a throwaway line. No, we're serious. We need your input on this episode. This thing may come back in the fall, as some people have predicted. I heard during the Judicial Council that our paradigm has shifted. Uh, I don't think they use those words because only Tane uses big words like that, that that have silent letters in them. <laughs> But but basically that our business as usual has changed for at least several years or until a vaccine is developed that people have confidence in. So, again, contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail dot com. Again, thanks. Go out to the Stephen Turner and Kevin Holder for all of their work. We miss our friends at UGA and I'm sure hopefully we'll be back there again uh, sooner rather than later. So for the good judge.
0: So. Go dogs.
1: So for The Good Judgment Podcast, I'm Wade Padgett.
0: And I'm Tame Kell. Ladies and gentlemen, be sure and wash your hands after podcasting for 20 seconds. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you folks for listening to The Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild
0: of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically Jim Henneberger uh, for their technical assistance and providing the studio for us.
1: Thanks as always to Stephen Turner and Turner Up Media, who does his best to get as much of our stupidity as he
0: can. But he can't get it all.
1: We are eternally grateful to CSCJ, the Council Superior Court Judges, for allowing us to handle in and their support in this project. Folks, these are our own opinions. They represent the opinions of Wade Padgett and Tane Kell, and do not reflect the opinions of the Council Superior Court judges, UGA College of Law, ICJE, or really anybody else for that matter. You can contact us on our website at goodjudgepod.com, or you can contact us on email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Folks, please rate and review our podcast on whatever listening app you may be using. It'll go a long way to help others find the podcast. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this one. Anything else you feel like we need to say? No, that's all, Wade.
0: Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.